This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest edition of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and with me today is Danny Hewson. We're going to be taking a look at what was behind last Thursday's global market slump and whether we're in for more turbulence going forward, given that inflation is heating up again, particularly in the US. In Britain, Freedom Day has been signed off, but different nations have different interpretations. There's lots of concern, particularly amongst the retail and leisure sectors, about how ditching masks might impact consumer confidence. It's earnings season and it's already started to fizz with Pepsi. But actually, whilst that stock was went down very well with investors, banks aren't getting the same reception, despite some pretty stellar earnings growth. So we'll be taking a look at this sector later in the podcast. Laith Kalaf is back with us. He's been taking a look at life strategy funds and finding out why they've performed so well over the last decade and what the next years might have in store. I've been chatting to Kartik Kumar, the man behind investment trust Artemis Alpha, about how he chooses which stocks to invest in. And I get the lowdown on two names that he's particularly interested in right now. Plus, Jenny Owen's been rifling through her junk drawers. This time, she's been focusing on old mobile phones and discovering some of them could be worth quite a bit of cash. So let's start by taking a look at the events of last Thursday on the markets. So we had a big sell-off on the 8th of July as investors were starting to panic about the strength of the global economic recovery. Now, early that week, China signalled it needed to support its economy still, which still spooked the markets. And of course, infection, COVID infection rates are also on the rise again in various parts of the world, despite those vaccines being rolled out. So bond markets have been giving some clues as to how investors are thinking because bond prices have been rising and yields falling. Now, that suggests that people have been looking to put money into seemingly safer parts of the market. Now, the Bank of America's latest fund manager survey which suggests that investors believe the boost to global growth from the economy reopening might have already passed its peak. Now, that's very important. At the moment, we've just got a sort of slight confusion in the markets about exactly what's going on, because if, if, if investors are interested in bonds, again, that's a real U-turn to what they've been worried about before, which was inflation, because inflation is actually bad for bonds. So perhaps investors now share the view of central banks that the rise in the cost of living is only transitory. And Dan, we've had some pretty hot inflation figures, particularly in the States. And used cars played a massive part in the hike in America. And there's certainly a lot there to support the argument, which has been going on for a long time, that this is a transitory thing, a summer heat wave, if you will, as parts of the economy, which were essentially locked down by the pandemic, open up again. But of course, The question everybody wants answering is how long is transitory? It's firing up the debate. It's unsettling investors because 5.4%, which is what we're seeing in the US, it's a 13-year high. And the pressure's mounting on the Fed to do something soon. Though it is important to note that the used car price spike I was talking about, which amounted to almost a third of the heat, was already falling by the end of the period that we're talking about. 
because the surge in demand, well, a lot of it's going to be a one-off. People maybe not wanting to use public transport or people who hadn't used their car in a while and found it wasn't working. Or, or maybe they've been thinking about changing them, but they're not quite ready to spend the cash on an electric car. Or perhaps the car they wanted's not around because of the chip shortages globally. So many variables. In fact, I've heard it described as trying to thread a needle in a hurricane working out what to do. But when you add in UK inflation figures, which came out this morning up to 2.5%, a three-year peak, and what we've seen is markets tumbling right across the globe. And of course, you know, a lot of the focus, as you've been saying, is, is what's going to happen from next Monday. And how has Freedom Day been playing out on markets, Dan? Well, it's been quite interesting. Stuff that's linked to travel and leisure has not actually been doing very well. You know, it's real estate and tech that's really been grabbing the investors' attention. Both of those sectors were previously sold off and now making a comeback. And I just think that you just have to look at the world at the moment. Lots of children are home from school, isolating. Same with lots of workers as well. And I just get the impression that people perhaps starting to get nervous again about going out into crowds and into shops and perhaps using public transport. You know, this we've got changes of rules about wearing masks. Do you do you have to you wear them on planes, but perhaps you don't have to wear them in shops, but you do if you go into Waterstones. It would suggest that, you know, this Freedom Day is not the sort of the trigger for investors to start feeling even more enthusiastic about the outlook. Let's recap quickly on where we are with that mask wearing, because it's ridiculously confusing. It differs depending on where you live. So in England from the 19th of July, you're not legally required to wear a mask, though the Prime Minister has said mask wearing is recommended in enclosed public spaces. But it's down to common sense and personal responsibility and whichever retailer or whoever's running public transport, whatever they decide The mayor of London has said they will still be required to be worn whilst using public transport in the capital. Airlines, as you said, have said that they will still be required on planes. In Scotland, masks will still have to be worn in indoor public places like offices and shops and on public transport. In Wales, masks will still be required on public transport, in health and social care settings. And at the time we're recording this, we're still waiting for a steer on what will be required for shops. This, as you can imagine, is providing a huge headache for businesses that have outlets in different parts of the UK. It's also prompting concern about staff safety, both from the hospitality and the retail sector. You know, if they try and enforce mask wearing when it's no longer legally required, how will people respond? And for lots of consumers, this is going to be a confidence thing. There's going to be some shoppers and drinkers who can't wait to get rid of the masks, who want to prop up the bar in their local, and of course, people who can't wait to get back to nightclubs or enjoy theatre performances or music gigs. But when you take a look at Cineworld's shares, it's been on or near the top of the day's losers on the FTSE 250 all week, and that's despite an incredible box office showing from Marvel's Black Widow, which posted a post-pandemic record for an opening weekend. It's going to be a difficult path for businesses to walk, you know, keep restrictions and risk putting people off, putting staff at risk from people who don't want to wear masks when they don't have to, or or ditch them and maybe put off customers who don't want to rub up against strangers without the protection that mask wearing affords. But 
reopening is providing a a big boost for one drinks maker, Dan. Yeah, so PepsiCo is uh, seeing a big return of demand for its drinks from restaurants and other food service customers. Now, that means that second quarter results have smashed forecasts. It was expected to make just under $18 billion in that period, but it actually produced $19.2 billion in sales. Now, that's absolutely fantastic. And you just have to think that during the pandemic, it benefited from surge in demand from consuming these products at home, but it lost out on sales for drinks and snacks in bars, restaurants, and hotels. So it certainly seems to be sort of trying to get back to some sort of sense of normality. And I think it's quite important to understand the business. It's more than just about the fizzy drinks that carry the Pepsi brand. The company also owns Walker's Crisps, Doritos, Quaker Oats, Tropicana, Lipton iced tea, and lots more. And I think that, you know, yes, it's got high costs at the moment for ingredients, freight, and labor. And of course, that means prices will go up. But when you've got such strong brands as it does, management are going to be fairly confident that they can push up the price of a can of fizzy drink or a packet of crisps, and it won't damage demand. Yeah, those producers of those brands that we know and love are probably thinking that they can push things quite away before people will decide that they don't want to pay for the products. And I tell you what, one product that people are prepared to pay an awful lot for, and that is maternity clothes. And this will be of interest to to anyone that's heard of the company Seraphine. And I'm going to make sure that I say that properly because there is another IPO coming out at the moment called Seraphim, which has nothing whatsoever to do with maternity clothes. But this is trading under the name Bump. But Unfortunately, the birth story for this maternity clothing company's IPO hasn't been a great one. It's a favourite of the Duchess of Cambridge. When she was expecting, she was photographed wearing a lot of their stuff. But when it launched on Tuesday, shares started out £2.95, valued the company at £150 million, but it tumbled nearly 3% in conditional trading on the first day and has slipped a bit more today. There's going to be a lot of eyes watching this IPO, not least the team at Revolution Beauty, which is due to make its own debut next Monday. Is there an appetite from investors right now with all this uncertainty? Watch this space, Dan. Yeah, of course, I think perhaps investors are focused on companies that are already on the market at the moment and what's going on with their earnings. And of course, banks always tend to be one of the first to start reporting their numbers. And, you know, there's lots going on here. And, you know, in particular, in the UK, the Bank of England has removed restrictions on UK banks being able to pay dividends and conduct share buybacks. Now, these restrictions were put in place during the pandemic, but now it says the sector's resilient enough to absorb any further COVID shocks. Now, that could potentially mean that investors might get more generous dividends soon. Now, the Bank of England started to relax the restrictions last December, but maintained a limit on the payouts to 25% of quarterly profit and only allowed 2021 dividends to be accrued and not paid. But in the US, the Fed has already scrapped its payout limits and the ECB in Europe plans to do so in October. And I think overall, these actions should be good news for investors. Now, we've seen the US banking sector 
already say it's going to pay out an extra $2 billion in quarterly dividends after these restrictions were lifted on its payouts. For example, Morgan Stanley said it would double its quarterly dividend and raise its share buyback from $10 billion to $12 billion. Now, I just think if you're looking at UK stocks at the moment, the banks are expected to yield between 5 and 6% next year. So NatWest is the highest yielding stock with a prospective 5.9% yield. But Lloyd's is also one of these very popular stocks that people love to own. You know, over the years, it's uh, you know it used to pay very very generous dividends, particularly before the global financial crisis. Investors have just hung on in the hope that it will get back to those popular days again. So, you know that it's yielding prospective five point five percent for next year. You know but that's that's quite good relative to the rest of the market, but its share price is still a fraction of what it was pre-financial crisis. I think investors will just be hoping for a big jump in the dividends. But you know, they do need to note that the company's got a new CEO coming soon. And I think it'll be a bit much to see him jump immediately to start paying out extra bits of cash when he's probably got a big list of things he'd rather spend the money on, such as upgrading IT systems. But you know, as we look to the future, you know, what does a return to normal actually mean for these banking earnings? Yeah, because banks actually, uh, peculiarly, have done pretty well out of the volatility on markets over the pandemic on the one hand, but now the volatility is abating, they need to look elsewhere. And the big focus at the moment is on loans. We've just had results out from Bank of America. And I think that these figures really tell the story of the sector because it's net interest income, which is a key measure that we look at to see how banks are doing. It shows the difference between what they earn from loans and what they pay out on deposit. And that's down 6% over the quarter. But the boss, Brian Moynihan, has said that loan levels, which have been significantly depressed, are now beginning to grow. And in this hyper low interest rate world, um, it's crucial. Uh, But I guess the big issue is how quickly will demand pick up? Remember, there's still a whole lot of uncertainty. Some businesses are still carrying an awful lot of debt. Consumers might be wary of taking on debt or they might not need to take out a loan right now because, you know, the things that they've wanted to buy, they might have been able to do that using those stimulus checks that went out in the US. And the boss at JP Morgan said yesterday that the mix of low interest rates and low loan demand wouldn't make for blockbuster trading in the short term. But that's a big focus, you know, that consumer demand because of the volatility of markets, um, which sounds odd because they've done so well from the volatility during the pandemic. But we know that JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs are both making a big run for UK retail business at the moment, both hoping that their names and a big focus on tech advances, on accessible wealth management and business services will go over well because this is going to be a test bed for them. And if it works out, They'll then use the formula and roll it out in other locations across the globe. So we'll stay on top of these results and discuss any of interest over the next couple of weeks. But now it's time to talk about the cheap and cheerful approach of Vanguard's life strategy funds and how they performed in the decades since they launched. So Laith Calif is with us. Hi, Laith. Hi, Dan. Hi. So let's start with what life strategy funds are and how they've performed. 
Yeah, well, I'm sure they're probably familiar to some uh, listeners already. Um, they're a very big fundraiser, around £29 billion in total. And as you say, they've been going for just over 10 years. So they've now all got a 10-year performance record. Um, and in a nutshell, there are a range of five funds, um, each one a bit different because they have varying levels of um, equities in them with the remainder um, being invested in bonds. So um, they range from the uh, the lowest amount of equ- equity, which is uh, life strategy, 20%. So it has 20% in equities, as the name suggests, and the remaining 80% uh, in bonds. And that goes up in 20, uh, 20% um, jumps. So the next one is life strategy, 40%, has 40% in equities, all the way up to uh, life strategy, 100%. And um, the idea behind these portfolios really is that they're kind of a one-stop shop for investors and you can basically choose uh, which one you want depending on how much risk you want to take. Um, and all the, all, the, all the funds are basically rebalanced so that you don't have to worry about them getting out of kilter. They're all, they'll always rebalance to 60% equity, 40% bonds or whichever, uh, you know, whichever uh, risk level you've chosen. And also they are invested passively, which is, um, you know, a, an approach which is um, obviously associated with Vanguard, even though they're a really big active manager as well. Um, uh, the, 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 the investments uh, that they make within the kind of equity and bond sectors are all index tracker funds. Um, which means that the the funds themselves are pretty cheap. They come in at 0.22% uh, per annum. So that's that's a pretty good price. I mean, if you think about probably your standard um, uh, actively managed fund comes in at around 0.75%, then that's the kind of context for a 0.22% annual fund charge. And if you look at the last 10 years, they've actually performed pretty well. Um, I mean, actually, if you compare them to the sectors that they're in where You've got these mixed asset funds, which in, in a lot, like the life strategy funds, invest in, in a range of, of assets, bonds and, and equities mainly, but also the other funds invest in things like cash, uh, gold, commodities, all sorts, really. Uh, but the life strategy funds over, over 10 years um, have, have beaten their, their sector averages. And, you know, they're, they're all in the top quartile of funds. So they're, they're passive funds, but strangely, they're, they're beating a lot of active funds. Um, over the over the last ten years, um, uh, and um, you know you you might might think that's odd, and it is odd, and, and and there are some reasons behind that, but that kind of explains you know why I think they've become so popular is because they are very simple products, they're very cheap, and they perform very well. So the obvious question people are going to be asking on hearing that is why have they performed so well? Well, I think obviously, I mean, costs is part of it. Um, you know, the lower that you can keep costs, the more returns come through um, to investors. Um, they're still not obviously beating the indexes that they're tracking. That's not possible for a tracker fund. Or if, if, a, if a tracker fund is beating the indexes that it's tracking, you need to sort of start asking questions about it because it's not tracking. Because what a tracker fund does is it follows the index and after charges, it will it will underperform. But they are beating other actively managed funds um, in, in their sector. Um, and the main reason for that is because um, fund managers... Um, in these sectors who are allocating money to to different areas have been consistently uh, light on investing in bonds. They haven't wanted to invest in bonds for a long time now. Um, And that's because bond prices have been driven up so high by quantitative easing. 
um, that most kind of rational active fund managers look at bond prices and bond yields and think, well, I'm not getting much return and there's an awful lot of risk here and there's an awful lot of market manipulation going on as well. Um, but um, as we know, um, central banks have just kept feeding um, feeding that kind of liquidity, buying bonds and driving prices up even more. And that, again, of course, happened with the pandemic. Interestingly, if you look at performance over the last year, there has been a bit of a reversal. The active funds are on top and the Vanguard funds are actually falling down the pecking order. And that's because over the last year, um, we have had that kind of period where there was a sell-off in bonds. Um, because as, as Dan was saying earlier, I think there was there were inflationary concerns. There was also the fact that we were getting an economic recovery. And so people were thinking, actually, interest rates are going to rise. We don't want to be sitting in bonds. So over the last year, there has been a, a, a bit of a, a reversal. And that does, I guess, pose a bit of a question for the future in terms of how life strategy is going to perform. And of course, I guess that will come down to, you know, that, you know, that old conundrum really about where where bond yields are going to go. On the one hand, um, you know, interest rates are at record lows. We're, you know, about to have uh, an economic recovery, we think. So you'd think that central banks are actually going to start at some point to take their foot off the accelerator, and that should be negative for bonds. But at the same time, there are clearly still cautionary fears out there in the market. Um, and uh, as we've seen recently with, you know, kind of bond prices creeping up again, and, you know, it takes, you know, a fairly brave person, I think, to to bet against the bond market, um, you know, given the kind of last 12 years of history that that, that we've seen. Um, so it's it's an interesting conundrum and an, and an interesting kind of little microcosm of what's going on kind of in the bond market at the moment as well. Thank you, Leif. Now, sit back, grab a cuppa or whatever you fancy, because Dan has been chatting to Kartak Muir from Artemis, and he's been explaining why the Sports Direct Fraser's group is misunderstood and the big turnaround opportunity at Funeral Company Dignity. So we get a lot of requests from listeners to interview fund managers about why they've chosen to invest in certain stocks. And as such, I thought it would be useful this week to bring on the man behind investment trust Artemis Alpha, which has just reported its latest financial results. So its net asset value increased by 56% in the year to 30th of April, more than double the 26% return from the FTSE All Share. I'm delighted to welcome co-manager Kartik Kumar to talk about two of the stocks in his portfolio that have contributed to this strong performance. So Kartik, thank you for joining us. Hi, good morning. So before we talk about Sports Direct's owner, Fraser's, let's begin with Dignity. So this is a, a company that charged people a lot of money for funerals, and, and then the industry became very competitive, and Dignity was forced to rethink its entire pricing model, causing a bit of a, a you know, a, a, a bit of a quite a severe slump in its share price. And then the competition and markets authority then started to look at this space, and you know, and all these things sort of added up and investors really went off the stock. But but Kartik, you saw potential in its darkest hour and now reaping these rewards as the share price is racing back up again. Can you sort of talk through what you saw in the business and why you decided to invest in this stock? Um, yeah, you're short and I, I might add that I, I saw some potential before its darkest hour. I wasn't sort of uh, that quite quite that clinical. Yes. But um, uh, yes, yeah, so um, firstly, I, I guess you, 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 you sort of alighted straight away at, at some of the issues with dignity, but um, taking a step back, one of the points that I think is unchanged, which I've always found very attractive, is, is, is actually just 
the fundamental characteristics of the end of life industry, as I'll call it. Um, and, and these are slightly stating the obvious, but I think they slightly were forgotten with the issues that the company was suffering from largely that um, this is a very predictable market. Um, I, I like the quote, you know, two certainties in life for death and taxes. Um, and, and this is catering to one of those. Um, for the last 10 years, effectively, the death rate in, uh, in the UK has been suppressed. Um, and for the next effectively 10 to 20 years, um, because of demographics that were created 60 to 80 years ago, um, one unique feature about it is, is you know, with, with a high degree of certainty, um, that the actual overall industry will be growing uh, for now, on, uh, for the next 20 years. Um, so one point I always make when I'm looking at dignity is if you just take a step back, the actual market it is in um, the end of life uh, industry um, has some unique features. It's highly predictable. It's acyclical. So, you know, the numbers don't change too much with the recession um, and, and, and slightly differently from the last 10 years, it will be growing for the next 10 years. Um, so that's a sort of top down point. When you look at it, um, Dignity itself, I think, is, is, is quite a unique business. Its history goes back to, um, I think, early 1800. And the one point I'll make here uh, to, to be sort of brief is that, is, is that the most unique feature about it, in my view, is that in, in the industry, um, it is the only operator of both crematoria and funeral homes. Um, so about 79% of people in the UK um, out of the roughly 600,000 people um, who passed away last year are, are cremated and that share has been growing. Um, but on top of that, in terms of actually uh, servicing a funeral, um, they have about a 10% market share and 800 branches here in the UK. So they're the only operator who effectively is vertically integrated, both having funeral homes and crematoria. So what, what is it that sort of has changed the market's view on the stock? Because you know, clearly competition is pretty, pretty tough and it seems the direction of travel is, is for pricing to, to go down. So what, why is it that now that the stock market is happy to um, sort of, you know, reward dignity with, with a high rating? So one of those, I mean, the stock market is happy from last year, but, 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 but actually the stock's still more than halved from where it was three, four years ago. So I think it's got a lot to prove. Um, what, what I would say is that I think um, there were some things last year which didn't make that much sense. So, you know, I was slightly puzzled. I lost at one point last year, 60% um, in a funeral operator in, in a global pandemic. Um, so some movements didn't make it. And in your intro, one, one thing not to forget about is on top of the CMA and, and, and the sort of impact of having run the wrong strategy for a decade, you also have a company with quite a lot of debt. So when things are going wrong, it looks quite scary. Um, what I'd say is I think what the market's seen um, and we've supported a change in the strategy is that uh, this is a business that has many of the building blocks to be a very successful operator in, in, in what, what I sort of try to point out is, is a very attractive market. Um, and, and, and that is to say that this company could be a price leader, a service leader, and have a growing market share in its funeral business. Um, but also when you combine with that, the attractive features of its crematoria and its pre-need funeral business. So that is when you buy a funeral plan um, far before uh, effectively you buy your own funeral plan. Um, th those have some very attractive characteristics where if you put them together, um, you can end up with um, some, some very interesting results. And I think what you're just seeing uh, is the market putting some weighting or, or on a possibility of, of, of that happening. Yeah, what, so, and I sort of hear about um, 
you know, sorry to keep going on about pricing, but you know, is it, it could could dignity sort of effectively slash its prices quite dramatically, um, and then sort of you know dramatically increase its market share, or is that just not the strategy it wants to go down? Um, let me make two op- um, let me make two observations. I believe businesses that maximise consumer surplus. Um, and that is to say consumers are paying less for something than the value they derive from it are winners over the long term. And I think the best example of that is Costco. Everyone would actually pay more for their Costco membership um, because the value they get out of it is is much greater than the price they pay. Um, The business shares those benefits with its employees and it delivers a fantastic product that that means it's grown revenues and profits for for decades. And, And as you can see, it trades on a very high multiple. So the first point I make is in general, I, I do not like businesses that are taking advantage of its customers, and I would much rather um, you be able to in- increase prices and, and consumers share in the benefits uh, than the other way around. To your direct question of, is this a business that could um, effectively run a strategy which delivers better value for customers? Yes. Um, why is that the case? Is because if you look at what the maths of this, um, it's effectively a business, if you look at dignity as a business, whether you're delivering a, crem- a cremation or a funeral, you've got a largely fixed cost base. So if you were to think about it, if you are able to grow your volumes, but at a lower price point, it can actually still have a significantly positive impact on um, your overall profitability. And uh, now that might come at a cost initially because you clearly have some cannibalization. Um, but what I think is quite interesting is that the business has run some trials on what the impact of cutting prices would do. And they've been really quite favorable. Um, You might not understand why that's the case because there's a sort of common misconception that people are sort of entirely insensitive when it comes to a funeral price. Um, I spent quite a bit of time in the last month visiting different branches. And what I came to realize is the people in the branches are highly compassionate um, and would actually like to serve more customers. And, and, and what, what you were having is an issue that people would come through the door and be deterred by prices. And actually the staff d- didn't like the prices at which they were serving their customers. So when you take away price um, as I would put it as more as of a hindrance to serving customers, you, you can have an impact of effectively being able to service just what's coming through the funnel. And, and as I mentioned, because of the economics of the actual business model, that can translate into a significant improvement in profit. Yeah. So, I mean, the shares are up uh 280% in the last 12 months i mean is that is that enough for you to say well we've made clearly made a lot of money time for us to sell on or are you going to hang on because you think that there's so much more that this business can do um i really like the phrase i i, I don't know if it's charlie munger or warren buffett but uh um price is what you pay value is what you get um i've you, you know i've paid my price but but in my view the value which actually in the case of Dignity, if you look at the AGM slides, the company itself has, has sort of framed quite clearly what they think the uh, value potential is, um, is, is really quite significant. And so um, all, all I would say is, I, though I'm not in any way um, very pleased with what's happened in the last year, I don't tend to anchor. I, I, like, the, I, I like the phrase, um, stocks don't have memories. So, you know, Dignity doesn't remember that it was 250p last year. Uh, in, in my view, that's history. Um, and, and what I see in the future has significant potential uh, and you could see from the slides um because i think i need to be careful about talking about value um th- th- that i believe there's a lot of potential left in the business i think we're scratching the surface if, if, if i were to r- really go into in, in, into the detail of each part yeah okay let's move on to phrases so this is um the parent company of sports direct uh, which is a uh, you know pile them high sell them cheap retailer 
the boss, Mike Ashley, is you know is a bit of a loose cannon. The company's been involved in lots of scandals around employee pay. Um, it seems to like taking stakes in struggling rivals. But now it's it's sort of making this big push into sort of the more luxury side of fashion with its flannels brand. I was just wondering to you know to the casual observer, this strategy seems a bit confusing. So you know, as an investor, why have you allocated quite a bit of money to this stock? Okay, uh, so you've got you've touched on a bunch of things there. Uh, let me touch on the let me go into a couple of parts. Let me address the pile of high sell them cheap model and 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 then Mike Ashley. So firstly, on the pile of high sell them cheap model. Um, I think this business really understands the, the need to adapt with the change in times. Um, selling very, very uniquely cheap um, Nike apparel um, with a Dunlop umbrella by the, by the window on the way out was a very profitable model for the last 10 years, but the world's changed and the way Nike and Adidas would like their retailers to serve their customers have changed as well. So if you go into a new store, you're going to have a look at the... Um, Sports Rec store on Oxford Street. It's just it opened two weeks ago. They spent, I think, ten million pounds on the refurbishment. That's not really the way that the the athletic market will work going forward. And um, what's kind of interesting is if you look at Nike and Adidas's stocks in their own right, they've been fantastic for the last two decades. Um, they, they actually have many of the features that luxury has. So, firstly, what I'd say is that that model is changing. Sports Direct is adapting. Um, what isn't changing there is that Sports Direct can uniquely offer very strong value to its customers because it owns a number of brands where it can set its own price. So, Slazenger, Dunlop, Everlast, Caramore, Lonsdale, those are owned by the company. I think investors quite often forget because it's not split out. Those are very valuable bland brands in their own right. And Sports Direct is uniquely able to set the price for those brands because it owns them. Um, so when you look at that and then you look at the luxury strategy, I believe it's a bit less confusing if you look forward um, and, and not sort of backwards. Um, flannels, I think, is, is potentially a phenomenal business. I'm actually um, mimicking what Mike Ashley said there uh, for the simple reasons that luxury is a fantastic market. Um, if you look at any luxury goods maker, you, you know, it's, it's an easy way to see that. But. But, but what it has is it's got a, a first mover advantage of being the omni-channel retailer. And, and I think that's important because there are quite a few good players who moved to the market doing luxury online. But, but they're doing luxury in an omni-channel way. And, you know, as, as the company likes to say is, you know, you wouldn't believe how many 2,000 pound Gucci tracksuits are being sold in Darlington. Um, so I think the strategy is less confusing than it seems. And I think Flannels is an incredible example of the company experimenting their way into something that could be very large. I'll make a, a more brief comment on Mike Ashley in the sense, and what I'll say is I think he's thoroughly misunderstood. Um, I, I personally regard him as, as a really great businessman for the reason that he runs a, a, a very good ship. He, in, in terms of operationally, if you look at the operating cost per square foot of Sports Direct, I, I think they're best in class. Um, on top of that, what I think is hugely important is the way he invests the money that the business generates um, has over time delivered significant value. So we all remember Debenhams, he lost a lot of money there. People don't remember that he made a tremendous amount of money in JD Sports. Um, flannels itself is, is a product of experimentation. If you look in the last year, um, Evans Cycles, Sofa.com, they're not broken out separately, Jack Wills, but I think those were all really quite small acquisitions uh, that the business made. Yeah, well, I noticed that Adidas and, and Nike are you know, selling more products directly to the consumer now. Um, does that sort of suggest that companies like Sports Director and, and, and Flannels 
uh, they, they've got new competition. So is it not going to be um, straightforward to simply open up a shop, try and sell the more expensive sort of trainers and, uh, you know, and see the customers come in because they've got competition now from, from the brands themselves? So the whole the threat of brands going direct to consumer is, is a bigger question for retail in general. And I believe the answer to that is nuanced, depending on which market you're in. If you look at the market that um, the Sports Direct is serving, it's actually quite different from, uh, say, JD Sports. So, uh, you know, here's an interesting one. I, I think Sports Direct has a zero percent market share in Adidas Originals. Um, so it's not as it, 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 it's sort of it's different. They actually serve the sporting goods market, um, which is slightly more complex. So if you're if you're an avid runner and you want to buy a new pair of shoes, it's quite likely that you want to compare across different brands. Um, and therefore, it, it, it's likely that um, effectively consumers value choice. And if you flip it the other way around, brands value the distribution. So I had a really interesting conversation with Mike Ashley a couple of weeks ago about how he's opened a store in Scunthorpe. Um, and he puts it down as part of his mission. He, he genuinely believes in this is to save the high street. But 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 Nike and Adidas would not be able to justify standalone stores in Scunthorpe. They possibly wouldn't be able to reach their get there with their on with their online only business. And therefore, Fraser's or Sports Direct are delivering a lot of value to the consumer and to the business. And, and that's why I think I think it's a pretty sustainable model. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would suggest that Mike Ashley is very unpredictable. Um, do you, is there any sort of suggestion that actually the company might be better received if there was someone else sort of just running the day-to-day -day operations and perhaps he could step back and, um, you know, play a less hands-on role? Or do you think that, you know, that business is Mike Ashley, he needs to be at the top? Um, there are a couple of different aspects to this. I believe he's a fantastic retailer. If you look at Sports Direct, they buy a very high amount of continuity stock. So if you were looking at Ted Baker as a business, it's really quite different to Sports Direct. And that is to say that if you buy a lot of black Nike caps and black and white Nike shoes, you will save them. So sorry, sell them. And so I think he's a brilliant merchandiser retailer. And I also think he's good at capital allocation, but his capital allocation, I think a little bit like a fund manager, opportunities don't come in a straight line, nor do returns. Um, so I think if you look in, in, at, his, at his whole long history and you understand um, his philosophy, you can take a Debenhams hit and understand that effectively the, the bet might have been right, but the outcome was wrong. Um, would it be served, uh, the way I would explain a better person in charge, I, I, I think the company could could have effectively explain itself better uh, to, to get over some of these misperceptions. And it's actually something that I've been talking to them about recently. Um, and, and I think I, I think they can make a lot of progress there. Brilliant. Well, Kartik Kumar from Artemis Alpha Trust, thank you very much for joining us. So it's great to chat to Kartik. And if there's any subjects you'd like us to tackle or suggestions of people you'd like to hear from on the podcast, please do drop us an email. The address is podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And we have one last treat for you. Jenny Owens is back. Hi, Jenny. Hello. Now, this um, is a story I am really interested in because I've got a junk drawer full of old tech. I'm sure lots of other people do, too. Yeah. So today's Money Madness story might get you to check that drawer at home where you keep all the electrical stuff. Um, it's mobile phones that take the spotlight. Um, and with these devices, the older, the better. Most of us can remember our first mobile phone, whether it came with a massive battery pack like a suitcase was used just for emergencies or to play snake on. 
Some of these old devices could be worth thousands of pounds, and the most valuable one is the first ever pre-production iPhone, which Love Antiques reckons could fetch over £10,000. In fact, there have been auctions where this phone has made treble that amount. Looking back a bit further in time, the Motorola 8000X, which is a stereotypical blocky 80s phone complete with antenna, could fetch up to £3,500 depending on its condition, as it, has, it was the world's first handheld mobile phone. Um, if you've kept a chunky in-car phone in the attic, like the Mabira Senator NMT, weighing in at £22, you could be looking at £800 to £2,000. So iconic mobile phones like the Motorola Razr and the Nokia 3310 are fetching a lot less, especially if they've both recently been remade and given a huge update. But you never know, maybe that Blackberry lurking in an old box will someday become an antique. I remember my first phone, Dan, and I remember that it was one I was using for work and it was one of those suitcases and you put it on your shoulder and it weighed so much. It was not mobile. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I can't remember my last well first phone was probably one of those Nokia brick things that's probably the same for for most people so uh, thanks Jenny that's it for this week on next week's podcast I'll be chatting to Nitesh at Wisdom Tree about the age old investment favourite gold so we hope you join us then thanks very much for listening before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.